Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. Hundreds of teenage girls who are seeking asylum in the U.S. have arrived at the San Diego Convention Center, where they'll be provided temporary shelter. The center is expected to accept up to 1,400 unaccompanied girls between the ages of 13 and 17 over the next several months as the Biden administration deals with a rising number of people crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Congressman Scott Peters, a Democrat who represents San Diego, Diego, says this is not a permanent fix. This is not the answer to immigration reform, right? This is not the answer to asylum reform or even the answer for hundreds of girls who will rest their heads here over the next few months. Uh, They're going to have a tough journey. But my colleagues here before you are are happy for this, this act of compassion. These temporary facilities are part of the federal government's plan to move children out of Border Patrol custody more quickly as it works to release children crossing the border to sponsors, including family members or foster families. Public school children in Los Angeles begin returning to classrooms in two weeks, starting with the youngest learners in the district. There's concern that having to learn through computers has left many of these students behind academically. Reporter Deepa Fernandez says LA Unified has been trying to combat that learning loss by bringing mobile science units to some of its students in city parks. Hey guys, find, find your name. Your name is oh, on your bag. Find your name. Actually. Eleven students, grades first to fifth, are in a big circle on the grass of this LA city park. And all eyes are on the outdoor educator, the kids call Miss Willow. Welcome back, everybody. Who remembers my name? Well, almost all eyes. It's warm and windy out here, and some kids are crouching, some spinning about. They've left behind their computers in the parks and rec building, where they've spent the morning doing virtual instruction with their classroom teachers. Another educator, Ashley Story, explains what's about to happen. So we're covering ecosystems and we're doing an activity called salamander crossing. They have to come up with a way for a salamander to cross between its two habitats, a river dwelling and a forest dwelling. Story and her team have driven their science eco-van to this park to do a hands-on science lesson. They've been going to city parks since September, doing two-day lessons for students. What is a salamander? Has anybody ever seen a salamander? It's either a type of lizard or a type of fish. As the kids eagerly wait to get into their individual ziplock, packed with fun supplies, one little boy, a first grader, is sweeping his hands across the grass, all the while listening intently. I'm going to build a house that protects the salamander from the wind. I've always felt that the outdoors is a bit of a human equalizer. Jerry Salazar runs outdoor education for the district. He's watching the kids joyously attack the project. We know that learning loss is real during this pandemic. 
And we also know that the outdoors are therapeutic for all of these kids. A national study found the educational slide has been widespread during the pandemic. Zoom school just isn't providing what all kids need. And children of colour are falling further behind their white peers. Yet with this outdoor travelling science program, Ashley Story says she's seen even the youngest learners make serious progress. Definitely for the first grader, they are jumping ahead and they are grasping onto concepts that probably wouldn't even come to them until later grades, third, fourth grade. LA Unified managed to acquire four sleek black vans, a donation from the Skyhook Foundation. And Story and other educators equipped each one with plastic tubs full of science learning fun. Story lets me peek inside. So inside of the van... My eye is immediately drawn to one big tub. What is a skull lab? Yes, yeah, so students will get uh, replica skulls of different animals, and they have to try to figure out which animal the skull belonged to. Salazar says so many STEM standards are checked off by this one activity that even first graders can nail. This provides the introduction to outdoor learning, to learning about their environment, how they influence that environment and how they are influenced by it as well. And in the outdoor classroom in the park, students have managed to create a cardboard, duct tape, plasticine, pipe cleaner, toilet roll model for the salamander to cross the road safely. And then this is the land road starting off, to, and then it goes to the town that crosses the road, and then goes to the river. As billions of dollars in state and federal money flows into school districts across the state to help kids get back on track, these outdoor educators hope more schools will take a look at learning in nature. For the California Report, I'm Deepa Fernandez in Los Angeles. Contra Costa County is expected to open up vaccinations to everyone 16 and older later this week. The move would make Contra Costa the first county in the Bay Area to offer more sweeping eligibility and move it ahead of the state timeline to provide shots to those 16 and older by April 15th. Health officials say the decision is still not final and will depend on vaccine supply the county receives along with how quickly available appointments fill up in the coming days. Well, it is a big day for some students, parents, and teachers here in Berkeley. The first day back to school for kids in preschool through second grade. Berkeley Unified School District Superintendent Brent Stevens joins me now. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it is March. Uh, it's the end of March, but there is still considerable relief from so many parents about getting their children back into a real classroom five days a week. Talk to me about what it took to make that happen. With an awful lot of collaboration more than any other thing, we've been in discussions with our teachers and um, other employee groups now for months, trying to organize a way to return to classes. We've also counted on a huge amount of feedback from our families to understand exactly what their needs are at this moment. So this particular return for pre-K through grade two uh, represents a lot of collaboration, a lot of problem solving, and we're very happy that the day has finally arrived. And what percentage of students at Berkeley Unified have opted to go back to school? I should really say their parents have opted to go back to school in person. Right now at the elementary level, about 83% of our families have selected to return to campus. Uh, I mean, wow. 17% of families across the elementary schools will remain in distance learning. And how does that break down by race? Are we seeing more white families sending their kids back to school in person? We are. So among Berkeley families, white families are selecting to return to campus at the highest rate. 
And then uh, sort of in this order, special education students are returning at about a 70% rate, English language learners at about 67%, African-American families uh, about 54% at this point is selected to return to campus. It's worth noting that it's the majority of every group that is selected to come back, but these differences are present and they're concerning. And I've also seen parents of color talk about the issue of trust, some saying they don't trust the system to keep them and their kids safe, saying, you know, they can't expect the schools to do so now. What do you say to parents in that category who are reluctant to send their kids back? Yeah, we've at this point uh, really been careful to try and offer all of our families a choice while providing accurate information about all of the risk mitigation strategies that are in place in our schools. Uh, We've had multiple town halls, lots of printed materials, um, lots of uh, parent forums uh, intended to give parents and parents of color particularly an opportunity to learn about the many steps that we'll be taking to keep all of our students and staff safe. And at the same time, it's been very important to us that we acknowledge that some families are simply not ready and that we must provide a high quality alternative for those families. Yeah, let's talk about that, Superintendent Stevens. What is the plan to make sure that students who stay in distance learning don't fall behind? So we're offering uh, an identical distance learning program to the one that we have throughout the pandemic um, that features a lot of live Zoom instruction, specialty classes, half group instruction for students to get even more sort of specialized attention from their teachers. And in fact, we've made expansions to the distance learning schedule as we reopen our in-person classes. All of this came with a lot of administrative work and, frankly, a few very difficult decisions that we had to make to rewrite our elementary classroom lists. This was by far the single hardest task that felt us, and I think the the greatest Mm. and most difficult decision that the board and I have had to make through the course of the pandemic. Well, how are you doing? Are you looking forward to what's to come? I'm excited. I'm uh, sitting in my car, uh, ready to head off (laughs) to my first school and see a morning arrival under these new conditions. It's been now more than a year since I've had a chance to to visit parents and students on a playground as they head into school, and I'm really excited about it. Well, best of luck to you and to all the students and parents in the district. Superintendent Brent Stevens is with Berkeley Unified, and we so appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of The Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. An outbreak of the stomach bacteria H. pylori at an immigrant detention center in San Bernardino County has sparked concerns about the health and safety of detainees held there. From our partner station KVCR, Benjamin Perper reports the outbreak is the latest in a chain of events prompting advocacy groups to call for the Adelanto Detention Center to be shut down. 
we call for ICE to release all immigrants inside Adelanto. That's Lisbeth Ablin with the Inland Coalition for Immigrant Justice, which is part of the Shutdown Adelanto Coalition. The group is alleging that potentially hazardous and unsanitary water inside the facility is spreading H. pylori to detainees. And so we have at least three reports confirmed, but we we have recorded a history of this H. pylori infection throughout the years. So it's very disturbing, um, and this is all due to the unsanitary conditions. In response to this allegation, an ICE official said the agency is committed to ensuring detainees are treated humanely and that a recent facility inspection conducted independently by the Office of Detention Oversight noted zero deficiencies for safety or care, end quote. The ICE Office of Professional Responsibility Office of Detention Oversight is not an independent organization, is an organization under ICE. So it seems a little bit disingenuous to say that ICE conducted a review of ICE's own facility and determined it was fine. To me, that is like saying, you know, the prison guards reported that the prison was perfectly fine. That's Margaret Hellerstein of the Esperanza Immigrant Rights Project, who represents a detainee who contracted H. pylori at Adelanto. This isn't her only issue with the report. The fact that they talked to 12 detainees out of, at that time, I don't know how many, but hundreds, and it wasn't an on-site inspection, to me, that is disingenuous at best. Medical records obtained by KVCR confirmed that at least one detainee inside Adelanto contracted H. pylori after the ODO conducted its inspection in September. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Perper in San Bernardino. Finally this morning, in the Central Valley, many people experiencing homelessness in Kern County have been eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine under the state's guidelines. But that doesn't mean they've been getting it. Valley Public Radio's Mari Balaños has been following a street medicine team, the first in Kern County to take mobile vaccine clinics to remote homeless encampments. The Clinica Sierra Vista Street Medicine team administered 25 doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to unhoused people living behind the Rosedale Inn in Bakersfield. Dr. Matthew Baer says it took a lot of time and trust building to get people to agree to take the vaccine. Speaking with them before, we've had some people who are like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to get it. And then I've had people outright who are like, I didn't want to get it, but if you're telling me I should get it, then yeah, I will get it. The team has been visiting remote encampments in the county for almost a year, he says. Veronica King, who is experiencing homelessness, says she doesn't have an ID and thought that would prevent her from getting the vaccine. She says thanks to the mobile clinic, that wasn't a barrier. It is hard for us to get to the doctor sometimes or like for me, like I'm not from here, so like it's hard for me to take the bus or to have someone go with me. The street medicine team will continue visiting remote homeless encampments every Thursday to distribute the vaccine. For the California Report, I'm Madi Bolaños. And that is the California Report for this Monday, March 29th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits, stanfordhealthcare.org slash adaptingcare. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. 
I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.